Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley. Yeah, good to be here. I am uh, really excited because right after this recording, I'm going to see my Cleveland Cavaliers. Oh, wow. I didn't play, know that. Play uh, the Brooklyn Nets uh, near, a- our, near our home. Okay. Um, Barclays so Center? Yeah, Barclays Center with my sister. So uh, they're a playoff team if the season ended today, which is a big if. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're still better than uh, they should be. Is if, it, if there are any uh, NBA fans listening to this, they will they will understand my excitement. But yeah, good to be with you. How are you doing, Ashley? I'm fine. Not doing anything as exciting as that tonight. So just hope your Cavs pull it off. Except uh, except for paying attention to this very busy week in Catholic news. Yes, of it's course. Been, it's been a there's been a lot going on already, and it's only Wednesday. Yes. So um, so what do we got on Doc for uh, this week's show? We are talking to Kirsten Powers. We talked to her way back in 2017. Uh, She's a USA Today columnist, a political analyst for CNN, and the author of the new book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. Yeah, Kirsten is really great. She This is her second time on the podcast. Um, she's uh, actually third. We've interviewed her. She hosted our 100th episode. Um, and she's got this really great new book um, that I think a lot of people are going to relate to. Um, it's a cliche to say, like, uh, how do you you know go home in Thanksgiving and avoid talking politics? I was about to say that because I know you hate that cliche and I, think it doesn't actually happen. <laughs> I don't think it actually happens. I think that's just sort it of- It has a, happened in my family. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just don't think it's as prevalent yeah, as we'd like to think. Sure. But if that is you, if you do like dread politics coming up at Thanksgiving, Kirsten's got a, real, a lot of really great stuff to say, um, especially, you know, she's someone who did that professionally um, on Fox News and CNN for a long time and has found uh, a better way, I think, to navigate some of those thorny issues. Yes. And it might help to have these conversations over a drink. So Kirsten gave us a recommendation for margaritas on the rocks, no salt. So that is what we're having today. Yes. So <laughs> I, I do think, yeah, Drinks do generally help with that, but some people would say it probably makes it worse. That's, so that's uh, <laughs> use your discretion and judgment. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Cheers. And now we've got Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. As you mentioned, Zach, it's a busy news week for the Catholic Church. Yes. Yeah, so What's gonna, our first story? We're going to try to keep these <laughs> brief because um, we got a few things we want to get to. Um, first is the bishops meeting. We pointed you to this last week if you were listening. Um, they U.S. bishops gathered for their annual fall meeting in Baltimore this week, and uh, they, I would say, <laughs> I don't know, wasn't a lot of news that came out of it. Right. Uh, we don't want to spend too long on it. I, basically, as you, if you've been following this issue, there was a big debate over the summer following their spring meeting about this uh, document on the Eucharist and whether it's going to mention 
pro-choice politicians and abortion and whether or not to deny those people communion based on those stances. And turns out that the uh, approved document didn't really have any of that language. No, yeah, it really was more just catechesis on the Eucharist, the place, the importance, the central place of the Eucharist in the life of the church. Um, our colleague, Michael Lachlan, was was there at the meeting, and I think his report, the headline sums it up, debate over the Eucharist and pro-choice politician ends in a whimper. So no mention of Biden, no mention of politicians in the document. Um, the, the closest it gets is saying that bishops have to spe- uh, have a special responsibility um, to work to remedy situations that involve public actions at variance with church teaching. And and I do want to just, this will be the only point that I really make here, um, is that some people try to say that uh, members like you and I, the the media was somehow fanning the flames of this debate, or we're the ones that that caused this debate, which is just blatantly not true, right? We have on the record a number of bishops bringing this up uh, in their own voice, of their own accord. Yeah, so the bit... Clearly, the election had a role to play in this, but it's not the only factor. The bishops are also concerned. There was a a poll uh, last year or maybe a couple years ago now that showed that uh, most Catholics don't have a proper understanding of what we believe the Eucharist is as, you know, like the true presence. Um, So that got them concerned. And so they were in this process of starting a Eucharistic revival that's going to be like a multi-year process. There's going to be a Eucharistic Congress. Uh, in 2024 that they approved uh, at this meeting. Um, so both things are true, but it's it's not fair to blame this on On the media on solely, yeah. <laughs> What's our next story, Ashley? This one's really exciting. Yes. Um, our colleague, Michael Lachlan, who I mentioned before, received a letter from Pope Francis praising his new book, Hidden Mercy, which is about how the Catholic Church and individual Catholics ministered to uh gay people during the AIDS crisis. Yeah, and it came through the old-fashioned mail, I, which I thought was <laughs> delightful, just like a delightful little yeah, detail. Yeah, by way of the U.S. Embassy to the Holy See. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mike described the letter in an op-ed that was published by the New York Times this week. Uh, quote, Pope Francis said, quote, thank you for shining a light on the lives and bearing witness to the many priests, religious sisters, and lay people who opted to accompany, support, and help the brothers and sisters who were sick from HIV and AIDS at great risk to their profession and reputation. This is significant, right? Like a pope like actively acknowledging uh, the, the pastoral and health care that Catholics gave to uh, a population that was pr- very heavily maligned mm-hmm. and, and it sort of treated like outcasts during by a lot of people in the church too during, during the AIDS crisis. Uh, so if that's not a ringing endorsement for Mike's book, Um, I don't know what is, uh, which is good because we're going to bring Mike on to talk about that book um, and his work uh, reporting on the story and what it was like to get a letter from the Pope. So be on the lookout for that conversation sometime after Thanksgiving. What's our last story, Ashley? All right. Our last one actually comes from Italy, where there's a new trend of people choosing to get de-baptized. So this is- um, air, air quotes around. Yeah, yeah, air quotes, sorry. <laughs> the church does not recognize this as a the eighth sacrament. Yes. <laughs> um, but basically, this is, these are people who um, are either atheists or really opposed to the church's teaching on things like um, LGBT rights or abortion and and want to state in a you know official way that they no longer consider themselves a part of the church. Yes. So there is a somewhat formal process for right. this. Um, there is a uh, in the, Italy. I don't think it's universal. No. Um, there's a group called the Union of Rationalist Atheists and Agnostics, and they're kind of 
the ones that organized this. Um, but basically, people fill out a form who want to get debaptized, uh, explain the reasons, and then they send it to the parish church where they were baptized. The parish then is going to put a little note next to their name, and so it's on the, the baptismal records that they've requested this. But as you mentioned, the church doesn't believe that you can erase baptism. Um, a, it's it's a historical fact. It happened. It happened, <laughs> yeah. And, and B, it we believe it leaves in, in del- what's called an indelible mark on the soul, right? So you can't really, once you're... Once it's done, you can't undo it. One of the priests interviewed in the Associated Press's report said what it does, it, it just formalizes the person's abandonment of the church. But even just even though it's not a real deep baptism, it is an automatic excommunication for the person who seeks it. It is technically, according to the letter of the law, uh, apostasy, which sounds like a big yeah. <laughs> uh, old word. Um, and as you said, it's sort of this immediate excommunication, which I imagine if someone is at the point of going through this process, process they could care less about. Right. But what it does mean is, you know, no access to the sacraments. They can't be, they might not be able to be a godparent, uh, no Catholic funeral, things of that nature. Yeah. So I, what did you think when you saw the story? It was just sort of fascinating to read yeah. about this as a trend. Right. Um, my first thought was just like, why go through the trouble? Like if you don't, if you're an atheist and you don't believe in any kind of greater metaphys like greater being or you know like some sort of you know that the universe has a meeting and history is working towards something like what's what's the point who cares if someone looks at your baptismal records when you're dead and in your mind you're not anywhere else you're just dead so why do you care if someone thinks you're i mean i guess there's like a like a sort of issue of coherence or integrity where because these things often are like i mean the church one of the things it does best is keep records surprisingly and so they're often used by historians to look look people up and you know uh, cross-reference things and so i can imagine a, a space where if someone was baptized as a child was that was not a decision that they were involved in at all and as an adult they decided they want nothing to do with the church and they don't want anyone to think in the future that they wanted anything to do with the church. The other thing is, is that this is a very like, I don't know, public way of wounding the church. And I don't mean that in like, I think these people are spiteful, but like oftentimes if people fade away from the church and they kind of come to this area of they don't really believe in anything and they could care less about the church. It, it's tragic because for a number of reasons, but one of which is that we don't even notice those of us that are in the church. We just sort of it just happens. Whereas this, you know, we feel as a community, the weight of someone sort of saying no to this. And I don't know, that should like, that should hurt a little. It should cause something in us. It should make us miss the person that is, that is leaving this community. Right. And, and our theology backs that up because we still believe they are. Right. They're still baptized. baptized they are part of our, yeah, they're yeah. part of the church. Yep. Exactly. I guess when you're that close to Rome, you can't, you can't escape it. So You're a little bit of, of healthy rebellion, <laughs> is, or maybe not healthy, but a little rebellion is uh, going to be expected. <laughs> so uh, let us know what you think. You can uh, write, chat with us on Facebook or write us at jesuitical at americamedia.org. Now stick around for our conversation with Kirsten Powers. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Kirsten Powers. Kirsten is a USA Today columnist, a political analyst for CNN, and the author of the new book, 
Saving Grace. Speak your truth, stay centered, and learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. Welcome back, Kirsten. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. It's it's so good to see your face and hear your voice. And congrats on the book. I I know you've been working on this thing Thank for you. a long time. Yeah. And when we had you on our show, I think there were there were the, this. I, I think you brought a Richard Rohr book into the studio with you, oh, I'm if sure I remember I did. correctly. Oh, that's funny. And so, so I was really yeah. When what year was that? I don't even remember. I had to have been 2018, okay, 2017, that would 2018. That would make yes. sense because you were in the thick of it. That's when I was really in the thick of it. Yeah. Yeah. I was so really maybe, struggling. <laughs> maybe take us back to that point where you're struggling. So, yeah. I, you know, um, you started your story in the book around 2015, 2016. You're going on Fox News as sort of the 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 token uh, center left voice. And mm-hmm. you're you're just arguing with people that dis- like, disagree vehemently with you all the time. Yes. Um, how are you feeling you know, getting on TV and doing that all the time? <laughs> well, I think if you were to ask me at the time, I would have said it was fine. Uh, it, it was only when I looked back on it as a healthier person, because a lot of what I write about in this book is my journey towards more emotional health, towards being a more grounded person. So looking back on it, it seems incredibly unhealthy and toxic to me. But at the time... Because, and I write about this in the book, because of my specific trauma and the way I reacted to that trauma, one of the things that I tend to do when I'm under stress is dissociate. And so it gave me this weird tolerance for behavior that I I really shouldn't have been putting up with, but I would just sort of dissociate. I would just, if anyone who knows about dissociation, you just kind of remove yourself mentally from the situation and you're engaged enough to respond but you're not really experiencing it completely. And just to be clear, everything at Fox wasn't like that. When I was doing stuff more with the news division, it it wasn't like that at all. I actually had good conversations. I had debates with people like Charles Krauthammer or George Will or Steve Hayes, people who were very reasonable and smart and who held different opinions versus getting screamed at by Bill O'Reilly every Monday night. (laughs) So, right. So there were there were different aspects to it. So it, it it's not an all or nothing. It wasn't all bad or all good, but it was definitely, in hindsight, pretty unhealthy. Yeah. And when did was there a breaking point that you can look back and see where it just you it it all came to a head and you're like, no, I need to stop doing this. Yeah. It was very much. I think I had known. I was under contract for a pretty. I, it was a three or four year contract, so it was a pretty long contract. And I think about halfway through that, I, I felt like I, I should go. This probably isn't the best environment for me. But it really reached the breaking point with Donald Trump. And so it was in 2016. And that's when things really just, even in the news division, became untenable for me because I don't know if people remember, there was actually a time when Donald Trump hated Fox News. And so he was attacking Fox News all the time. And it became this environment where they were really scrambling to try to figure out how to get him to stop attacking uh, them. And I started to feel a little bit of not so subtle pressure to pull back, which had never happened before. And so I realized now is the time I've got to go. This is just, this is not a good environment for me. And so I started trying to get out of my contract. I couldn't get out of my contract. And then as I think we all remember, Fox News kind of imploded with Roger Ailes being accused of sexual harassment. And it was during that little opening 
that I was able to get out of my contract. And then I went straight to CNN. And, you know, Trump, I think, represented a breaking point for not just people in in media, but yes. you know, it, it, sort of the entire country be, becomes engulfed in, you know, we thought we were polarized before um, in the Obama years, but it really, I feel like, turns up the heat. So, it, it, and did it get better after leaving Fox or were you still sort of, you know? Um, it got, no, it actually got worse. <laughs> So, um, be precisely because of what you said, and it wasn't, it got worse in the sense that it wasn't, and it wasn't anything specific to CNN because I love working at CNN and I, I love the people that I work with, but because of what was happening in the broader culture, well, that was actually playing out for me at work because I had to go in every day and have those conversations, have those debates, have those arguments that a lot of people are having with their families or their coworkers, um, or their neighbors, but I was doing it every day on TV in front of millions of people. And so it, it, it's, it was, a, and it was a very different kind of disagreeing than I was having before, which was usually around Republican versus Democrat, left versus right kind of ideological or political views. But that's not really what was happening. It was almost always we were talking about what Donald Trump said that day, which was sort of crazy making. You didn't really know what he meant. You were having to listen to other people say things that weren't necessarily true. And I don't mean, I mean, they weren't a matter of opinion that they weren't true. They just weren't true. And so it really, it really became challenging for me. And I real and I realized, and you know, when you guys had me in, in 2018, I, I had hit the wall and I was trying to figure out how to sort of adjust and recalibrate for this new environment because I realized that my feelings and my sometimes my behavior just didn't align with what I believed. So say more about that. Like well, it, it, I, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe in loving your neighbor and in loving your enemies. And I was so far away from loving anybody. <laughs> it was I was and I, I don't believe you should hate people. I don't believe you should have contempt for people, any of these things. But I really got to a point where I didn't even really want to not feel those things. And I sort of recognized that. And you talk about in the book about how this isn't just confined to your role as a commentator on CNN. It, it spills into your personal life and personal relationships. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started, even people that I knew well and really loved or, or liked, just had a very, very hard time with some of the things that they were saying. And it was it was straining some of these relationships and I was behaving in a way where I would walk away thinking, what, what are you doing? Right. It's, it, this is not, this is not how, again, this is not what you believe. This is not how you interact with people. And also I, I was miserable. I was physically sick. I had chronic fatigue. I had chronic pain. I had, um, you know, I was anxious. I was depressed at times. I was hopeless. I, I just looked at it and I said, this is just untenable. I can't, it can't go on. We can't go on like this. And of course, he was going to be president for many more years. He potentially could have won re-election. Re and as we learn, him not winning re-election actually didn't change anything <laughs> anyway. So there wasn't really any end in sight. And so I got to this point where I just said I have to really sit down and start looking back at my own behavior 
and and sort of reckoning with where I was and how I was contributing to the problems in our society. And that was a really unpleasant process and very shame inducing. And so, and a lot of people will say to me, and even said to me, I ended up writing a column about it. A lot of people would say to me, but you're, you're the voice of reason. You're so reasonable. You're being too hard on yourself. And I think that's true. I think I often am the voice of reason and I think I often am very reasonable. And sometimes I was toxic. And sometimes I fed into what was happening in our culture and I was feeding into the toxicity. And so I got to this point where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Well, it's in some ways, <laughs> cable news is setting you up for failure in that regard because the just the format of how they talk about the news is here's here's the person on the right, here's the person on the left, like go at it. And so escaping that, I imagine, is really hard. And one thing you talk about or one chapter in your book is about escaping dualistic thinking. And that seems like something that's really hard to do uh, in, in your position specifically. Yes, yes. Well, and that was very critical. I don't think I would have gotten to the point of even forming the thoughts that I just said, the idea that that grace could potentially be a solution in this situation had I not discovered Richard Rohr and James Martin, who you work with, who became my spiritual director, where I became aware of just how binary my thinking was and just how it really was all or nothing. There was no middle ground. And I think that's the way we're sort of trained to think in this country. And then on top of it, my specific trauma made me even more more of a binary thinking. It's It's what I did to feel psychologically safe was to sort everything and to put people in the good and bad basket and make sure that I was in the good basket, right? I was the good person and they were the bad people. And so, and I was having a lot of, I was having a spiritual crisis. I was very frustrated with Christianity. I was frustrated with the Catholic church and both Richard Rohr and Jim Martin helped me see that there is this middle ground, right? You do not have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, that it's not all good or all bad. There's that you can embrace mystery. You can embrace not knowing, and so that did start to help ground me, and I stopped feeling so panicked um, because I started to feel very panicked around my faith. I started to feel like I, I don't even know. Am I Christian? Am I Catholic? I don't. And it was very. It, I felt very unmoored. And so the book is saving grace, and, and uh, what's. Unique in, in your perspective is, you know, you kind of getting into the religious aspect of it. And maybe we could just sort of ground this conversation a little bit. Like what's a – you give a number of definitions in the book or ways of talking about it and metaphors because grace is like one of those words I feel yes. like that's – it's like, you know, trying to cup water in your hand to yeah. figure out what it is. But <laughs> but go ahead and, and do that for us if you yeah. could distill what grace is. Yeah. Well, so I do use the Christian paradigm of unmerited favor, but I, I apply that to how we could extend that to each other. And so what that would mean is looking at another person and they don't have to do anything to earn your grace. They don't have to do anything to deserve being treated with grace. It's it's just what the person gets for being a human, for having the divine spark of God in them. And it's it's something that you just extend with really no expectation of anything in return. And Which is so different than what we're raised with or in our culture, right? Like yeah. it's so much like you have to like earn everything, earn respect or earn hustle and grind work, all these things. And so, 
But the truth is that's, you know, I really believe that that is what grace is. And it's not really about behavior. Now, there are different definitions of grace. There's being gracious and that that's often about behavior. I think when you do embrace a practice of grace, your behavior will become naturally more gracious, but that's not really the point. The point is how are you relating to other people? How are you thinking about other people? Are you judging them and labeling them and shaming them? Or are you looking at them and saying, I say grace is allowing other people to not be you. And they cannot be you without being demonized. Because often we look at people and they're like, well, why don't you think like me? Well, you're evil. You're horrible. You're dumb. You're all these things, right? We immediately label them versus saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm looking at this. I'm naming it. I think this is a problem, but I still see this person as a whole human being, not the sum of this one belief or this one thing they're saying. And I see the possibility in them. I see the possibility of a relationship, as crazy as it may seem, that there could be a way that this person and I could actually be in relationship at some point. And so it's a very different way of of thinking about people. And like, you, yes, a very different way that we've been taught. No, right. So it's it's most important when it's like the hardest to it's, give. It's, it's for the people that you don't want to give it to. Like, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. And in, in your case, you know, the examples in the book are, are, you know, generally, you know, Trump supporters or people who are, you know, rapidly defending President Trump. And so so what did that look like in in concretely in your life, learning to extend grace to people like that? Well, I have to say the biggest beneficiary was me. So I don't know that it really has any discernible difference to them because I wasn't, it's not like I was, most of this was happening in my head, right? I wasn't actually saying like, I think you're evil. I think you're a horrible person. I wasn't actually saying that out loud. I I was more that I was I was judging people. And and there is a reason that every world religion tells you not to judge people because it's toxic and it's toxic for you. I mean, it's not pleasant for them, but it's super toxic for you because when you're discerning and you look at somebody and you see something, you don't take it on, right? You just, they're there and you're here and they are doing this and you're seeing it, uh, but you're not taking it on. When you judge somebody, you become entangled with them. There's no way to not become entangled. You start to think about it. You feel contempt. You feel activated. And so for me, when I started using boundaries instead of judging and just looking at the person and using grace and saying, okay, I don't like this specific behavior or this specific thing that they're saying, but I see them as a whole person, I stopped feeling so anxious and stressed out. (laughs) I stopped feeling so angry all the time. And I think anger is a good emotion. I don't think people should try to avoid being angry. It's just that it should it it should activate you to do something positive. Volunteer somewhere, donate money, do a Facebook post that's not meant to be incendiary, right? That's just meant to be informative or or something. If you can do that, if you're me, you write a column. Uh, You do. There's there's various things we can do um, that don't involve attacking other people or demonizing and dehumanizing other people. You uh, have this suggestion in the book that uh, people should do like an inventory of their debate style or, or, or the way when they're arguing with someone, you know, what are their tactics? And it <laughs> made me think of a time when I was uh, dating my now wife. She said to me, uh, the way you argue with me is different than the way you argue with other people. 
Oh, interesting. Which was sort of, which I was, was A, like, taught me, okay, um, I should probably stop arguing with other people a certain way. Because I would always, I was seeking to destroy, basically, yes. in an argument, yeah. right? Like, I'm trying to win. Yeah. I'm trying to, and when I realized I was moving towards marriage with this person, right? You can't, that's not how arguments work, right? You're not trying to dominate or win or or something like that. But that that caused a like very moment of reflection where it's like, not that I'm I'm married to everyone else. If yeah. my wife's listening, I'm, I'm I'm not. But I should at least try to extend the same grace that I give to her yes. to, to other people. Yes, totally. Yeah. And I used to be the same way. And I actually used to really enjoy arguing. And but I don't anymore because for me, I'm actually not interested in winning a debate because what are you winning? Right? It's not like beating somebody else down who finally can't I mean I did anymore. feel really good when I would win an argument <laughs> I, I, I there think, is like yeah. some dopamine that comes <laughs> yeah well and I think that there, there there is but it's it harms the relationship and it yeah and it harms the potential of a relationship right because I would argue with someone I just met and and so I think I'm now more interested in conversations maybe a friendly debate but the point of it is to gain understanding the point of it is, is is to be heard myself and to also hear what someone else is saying and to be curious, not to convince them or win or any of these things, because that's not I mean, I guess there are some things I would want to convince people of, but I want to do it in a way that they walk away from it and they feel like that was constructive. I was respected. I was heard. And, you know, and that and that's that's a positive experience. Whereas I think we often don't realize again, how toxic we can be because we have been raised to kind of be dominating. Not to like sound like holier than that, but I'm, I am pretty conflict averse and would rather just avoid an argument if I can and usually do. Um, but you write in the book about, about good conflict, which is something I, yeah, I avoid both good and yes. bad conflict most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so what, is, what is good conflict and why should I not avoid it? Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because there are people who sometimes we look at and we say, wow, they have so much grace. They're just so patient. And, but really, they're, having, they're just, they don't want to have conflict and they don't want to confront things. And so they just, that's the way that they, you know, they deal with people and that's not really grace. And so, and, and, and conflict is a positive thing Anybody who's been in a relationship knows that, especially a marriage, where when you don't have conflict, that I mean, there's there's 0% chance that there's nothing that's bothering your spouse and that there's nothing that's bothering you. So if you're not having conflict, something's not being said, right? And so, but if you engage in healthy conflict, you actually get closer to the person. You actually get to know them better. And so I lay out in the book, here's how you can engage in healthy conflict. Here are some behaviors that you should absolutely avoid. Here's some behaviors that you should adopt. And, and if you do this, then you can actually maybe have some constructive conversations. I also talk a lot about the social science of how people change their minds, which is, again, not through being shamed, not through being accused. It's, um, you know, or, so, or having facts thrown at them. Yeah, or being bombarded with facts, because especially in our post-fact world where None of us can even agree on what the facts are. None of us trust each other's sources. So you're immediately going to get into a debate about where you're getting your facts. And so what people tend to relate to more, the social science finds, is your experiences as a 
you sharing with somebody, let me tell you about something that happened to me, or let me tell you about my best friend where this happened to them. People think you have an authority over your personal experiences. And so they're more likely to listen to that than they are to, to have you come in and be like, oh, let me tell you all the reasons you're dumb, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Well, and I think that's come to a, like, I don't want to sidetrack this too much, but with the with the pandemic, like, and even trying to convince someone to get vaccinated, it, it, what seems to be much more effective, what we've seen is that just having, like, some key people in your life that you know who got vaccinated and were fine with it and is way, way more effective than, like, expecting someone to go down, like, a Google rabbit hole of, you know, doing their own research, right? But I'm wondering, uh, you talk a lot about sort of a recurring theme about the book is you bring up the perspective of marginalized people. And because I think there's a, a perspective on this idea of granting people more grace that is difficult to comprehend for someone who who doesn't have any power, um, particularly in, in, in like dominated structures. And so how do you apply this vision of grace to our situation where, you know, you've got people in this country who have been been less than and and subjected to to domination? Well, one thing I would say is that most of the people I've talked to who come from marginalized populations completely grasp this because this is how they survive. Yeah. Right. It's like they this country wouldn't function but for the grace that marginalized communities have shown towards people who are disinterested in their rights or humanity. And so I but I certainly would never tell somebody you need to have more grace for somebody who is harming you. And I, I think it's a it's a kind of a survival tactic. I think that people misunderstand grace meaning no accountability. And that's not what it means. It's, or no action. Yeah, or no action or no confrontation or any of these things. Oh, no, I was just – this kind of relates to another aspect of the book where – a place where you say you've had somewhat of a transformation is around the idea of of free speech. You you used to be more of a free speech absolutist yep. and, you know, you know, maybe on what we would – call today like cancel culture, you would maybe be someone who's concerned about that and you've kind of had an evolution on that. Very much um, so, so, yes. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, I think it's it's all part of this process of becoming more emotionally healthy, dealing with my trauma, beca- being able to have more space to be empathetic and, and compassionate towards other people, which I don't think that I was. I don't think that I I sort of treated, I didn't sort of, I did treat free speech as the ultimate value. And there's all sorts of personal reasons looking back that I probably did that, that that have to do with my childhood and all of these other things, um, versus seeing free speech as a value and that's in competition with other values. And I so I, I go back and I revisit my book on free speech. And, I, and I, when I looked at it, I was pretty horrified because it really lacked empathy and I I was saying things that I, I don't think were okay, and I talk about that in the book, but particularly that for marginalized people, a lot of times these, these free speech debates or these cancel culture debates are around the fact that marginalized people have kind of had it, right? They're fed up, understandably so. They have tried every possible way to be heard, and now they're kind of ramping it up to the next level because their basic humanity is threatened. And so instead of having a debate, a very philosophical debate about free speech, now I'm much more inclined to say, what are they trying to say? What, what is it that, that they aren't being heard about and that they, they feel like they need to do this? 
and I see this over and over with people who they go immediately to talking about cancel culture or immediately talking about free speech. And it's like, wait, this person just told you a horrible story about something that happened to them. And you're just upset that somebody else lost their job, right? But like, what about what this person said? And what about what this person said this other person did to them? And so, you know, I think there is a there is a tension. There is the both and of this. It's not that I'm saying there isn't a certain brutality to the way that we interact with each other online, because there is. But we have to kind of look at the whole picture and realize that there's a reason that this is happening. And the reason that it's happening is because society doesn't listen. And we don't listen to what people are marginalized people are saying until we don't have any other choice but to listen. And that, that was made abundantly clear through Black Lives Matter movement and through Me Too. There's nothing that they said that people haven't been saying, right? It was only when people's stock prices, reputations, and jobs were on the line that people start that people started paying attention. So if you don't want that to be the case, start paying attention. So I'm much more interested in solving the problem of of marginalized people being oppressed than I am probably interested in in these other in these other things that I used to be frankly kind of obsessed about. I think I would I mean to say I was a free speech absolutist is absolutely correct and I think proudly so. And I you it would be I think disingenuous to say like you're in favor of cancel culture, like you do, you, you you do talk about what it would mean to extend grace to people who yes. have screwed up. Yeah, I mean, but I I also I don't even like the formulation of of cancel culture, and I I I I don't think that it's actually cancel culture, but that's another debate. I think that it's often people being held held accountable for things, and sometimes it gets out of control, and I don't think yeah. it gets out of control as much as people think that it does. Because when I really went and delved into a lot of these big cancel culture stories, there was a lot more there. And often it was people who had been confronted about things repeatedly and refused to change, refused, or even refused to apologize. Sometimes people only just wanted an apology and they, and they, wouldn't, they wouldn't give it. So people have been given opportunities. And then sometimes it's just, it's just brutal and it's just... And it's horrible to watch and it gets completely out of control. And I think we need to, as a person who used to get on the internet and and get involved in a lot of these things, we need to sort of step back and and try to apply some grace to people in that we look at them and say, this is a thing that somebody has done that at least appears to be very problematic. But let's remember, this is a person. It's not just a little picture on Twitter. It's a human being who has all sorts of other attributes, has a story, probably has a family, has a community, and let's treat them like that, not just like someone who's disposable. And whereas I feel like often people are just treated as disposable. What's it been like to be someone who's got a public political persona to kind of pivot a little bit to, you know, being willing to talk pretty openly about faith and how it's helping you navigate some of these things. Like what are your what are your conversations like on on other podcasts, I guess is what I'm getting at. Well, I think most of the people that I've talked to so far have been faith friendly, right? Mm-hmm. So I think people um understand that. But I but I have had people read advanced copies of the book who are atheists who really loved it and who really related to it. And so I wanted it to be 
I wanted it to be a book that was accessible for everybody, even though it's very rooted in the Christian faith. So because that's just my that's my paradigm and that's where I'm coming from. But I think that I say in the beginning of the book, it's the Christian wisdom tradition. You don't have to believe in Jesus to access this. So if you do believe in 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 Jesus and if you are a Christian, then I think it'll, you know, you're gonna probably relate to it. But I think other people should have access to that that wisdom tradition. And unfortunately, because of the behavior of a lot of Christians in the public eye, a lot of people don't even know that that's a thing, <laughs> yeah. right? It, it, so they, they go and they read books on Buddhism or, or whatever. They don't understand that a lot of that is actually in Christianity and is, is very powerful. And there's a, and this has been thought about for a long time by, by very smart people, uh, theologians and the like. So I wanted people to have some access to that because it's been so profound in my life. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing their wisdom with us and and your wisdom. Um, we do have one last question that we ask all of our guests. If you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, <laughs> fictional or real, who would it be and why? And just a reminder, last time you canonized Richard Rohr. No surprise oh, there. <laughs> okay. I was going to think I probably canonized uh, Martin Luther King Jr., but that's who I would. I would. I, I, he's had. Can I canonize Martin Luther King? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I'm sure I'm not the first person to suggest that, but he is. I mean, I just think he is one of the greatest human beings that has ever lived. Um, and both in terms of just a spectacular mind and uh, also just a. Uh, otherworldly grace in terms of how he confronted the evil of racism. Um, I look at him and, and I think of what he confronted, which is on such a different level of anything I will ever confront. And it just gives me that hope and it gives me that inspiration and it sets that example. Not that I could ever be like him. It's not possible, I don't think. <laughs> but it is this, this touchstone for me to always be looking looking to him, reading his work, and just feeling inspired. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's why we have saints. We might not be able to be them, but we can try and we should. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the book is Saving Grace. Speak your truth, stay centered, and learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. Kirsten, congrats again on writing it. And, and thanks for thanks for coming on the show and, and for being a friend to us for all these years now. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was such a great conversation. So hard to fade away But something's forcing me to stay It'd be easier for me if I turn away to Now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? Wanted to shout out and thank the new members of our Patreon community, Roddy Flynn, Aaron Sinner, Nora Luongo, and Daniel Van Bellingham. Uh, thank you so much for your support of the show. Uh, they got access to, we posted the Signs of the Times. I, I wrote up a little 
thing on the Patreon page uh, earlier this week because there was news happening in real time. Put a couple more stories on there. So they got access to that. And they're also going to get access to our next bonus episode, which is going to be dropping very soon. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for supporting the show. If you want to join them, you can hit up patreon.com slash americamedia. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. You're up, Zach. So I... um was thinking about the bishops <laughs> um, this Why? week. Why? Do you do that to I yourself? <laughs> I, well, uh, both because of their meeting, um, but I also, I saw a tweet from a uh, friend of the show, Tommy Ty, about, you know, just kind of joking like, uh, can't find up, can't think of a hot take for the bishops meeting. Guess I'll just pray for him instead. And then he has this points to this image of the guardian angel handing God $5 because the guardian angel lost a bet, <laughs> uh, which I thought was very funny. But it, it did c- sort of call to mind like my own relationship to wh- whoever the bishops as a, a body of people are. Um, I often joke that I thought I had a better spiritual life before I knew the name of any bishop, which I think is maybe true, but maybe But that's not. harder to maintain <laughs> when we talk to great people. I like know. Bishop Frank Congiano. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, it just made me think like, actually, you know, after that conversation last week, after this tweet and me thinking about it, I know it's really easy for young Catholics or Catholics of any age to get frustrated with uh, bishops sort of to treat them like politicians and like get frustrated with them. Um but they are they are humans and they're real people and they to actually like pause and pray for them in that in that role i don't know uh it put me in a in a peculiar place this week i thought yeah and it's a hard kind of prayer especially when you are maybe frustrated with what you're hearing from from a t- particular bishop or from the just like how the conference conference is operating as a whole so like bringing that to prayer in a way that's not just like, dear God, make them agree with me. <laughs> yeah. Um, Eric, we were talking to Father Eric about this, and he suggested, you know, the prayer can be something like, you know, may uh, just like may the Holy Spirit come to them or may they pursue um, what what is good for, for them, right? Like and sort of trusting that to God, right? Like that wherever wherever God is steering them, that that they are able to listen. And so I that was my thing this week as I was trying to pray for them um, in whatever way I knew how to. So uh, listeners, if you're hearing this and you're like, I couldn't care less about bishops. I don't know the name of my bishop. I don't even listen. I, I fast forward through your guys' signs of the time segment every week and just go straight to the interview. Okay, fine. But uh, maybe I just want to challenge you. Try to pray for, look up your bishop and what his name is and and, and say a prayer for him this week. Um, whatever, whatever form that prayer takes, I think God's going to be happy with it. All right. I like it. I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media and is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? 
If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.